The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is my honor and privilege to welcome Teresa Podal. She is the owner with her husband and her extended family, her husband's brother, of Prairie Road Organic Seed, and they are based in Fullerton, North Dakota. Now, I should mention that I had the opportunity to work with Teresa on the Organic Farming Research Foundation Board. That's how we met. And I had the wonderful opportunity to visit her beautiful farm in Fullerton last summer. And it was truly a beautiful, expansive farm, big sky country. She's an organic farmer, and I wanted her to share some of her concerns and what she's witnessed on her farm over the past few decades. So, Teresa, welcome. Thank you, Melinda. Nice to be with you. I want to talk a little bit about how you got to North Dakota, how you became an organic farmer, because you weren't always, and some of the changes you've seen in your farming community over the years. So let's just start out with your family. Was it your parents that came to the United States? Right. My parents immigrated from Holland in 1959. My father was the youngest of 12 children, and he knew that he would not have the opportunity to farm his family's farm where he grew up, and land, as you can imagine, is a limited resource in Holland, and so he researched where was the best location to to raise potatoes, and he ended up in the Red River Valley of North Dakota. And so was North Dakota everything he anticipated? I believe it was. The soils are amazingly rich in the Red River Valley and perfect potato growing country. And so he immigrated to a community, Park River Pisic area, and was mentored into potato farming in the Red River Valley by an established grower there who had a potato seed company and helped my father get established. So, yeah, he's been very happy here. I was really interested to hear some of the stories that you told about your parents' experiences in Holland. It was the time of the Nazi takeover, was it not? Right. My parents were just young children during World War II, and both of them grew up on farms and One of the vivid stories that was etched upon my mind as a young child was how the Nazis took control of farms and the farming community and confiscated most of the food production from those farms, left enough for the families to sustain themselves so that they could produce again the following year. But, yeah, Control of food and agriculture was the first thing that they did and obviously used the food that was produced to support their war machine. So 
Hmm. As a young child, that really influenced how I viewed agriculture in farming. Mm -hmm. When we met on your farm, I remember you telling me that story. And, you know, it's been etched in my mind, too, because what a frightening thing to happen for somebody to lose control of their food supply. And then I also remember you telling me how it became illegal to feed the poor. Right. As you can imagine, people were coming out of the cities. They were hungry. Food was rationed. And many of the people who didn't have enough food to eat would naturally come out to the farms in the countryside begging for food. And it was illegal to to feed the hungry, to offer them any food whatsoever, because all of the food was to be allocated to the Nazi soldiers. So neighbors were, were pitted against neighbors, would turn in a neighbor for feeding somebody who came to their door, and they would get an extra ration, like a cup of sugar or something like that, to reward them for turning in their neighbors. So it, it, it very much... It, uh, you know, just the, the control they had over food and people's ability to feed each other and even be neighborly was, was just astounding. Mm-hmm. Well, your father was not an organic farmer. And in uh, many times we've had conversations about your childhood growing up on the farm and how you were affected by some of the chemicals that your dad was using and how you became interested in the organic or the agroecological model. So do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Well, yeah, I grew up on a farm where we had a a poison shed, and us children were told very strictly that we were not supposed to go in there, and we didn't heed that. And I can remember being in the poison shed. There was a skull and crossbones painted on the door. It was an old granary. And it had been, you know, relegated to be the pesticide shed. And so there were bags and barrels and all sorts of things in there. And you didn't stay in there long because the smell just drove you out of there. But as a young child, I remember building forts out of Agsco chemical barrels and, you know, putting them in a four by eight rectangle and putting a sheet of plywood over it and that was our fort and so you know we played in that as a child and I look back on that now and shudder I left for college with my mother's admonition to never marry a farmer just ringing in my ears and (laughs) you know I didn't know how I felt about that I knew I was really glad to leave the farm you know as children worked quite hard on the farm there were six girls and one boy and so you can imagine us girls had to pick up the slack and and work as hard as our brother did. And so when I left for college, I was quite relieved to go off studying. And I took an ecology of land use course. And in one of his presentations, our professor, uh, Dr. Don Scobie at North Dakota State University, uh threw up some slides of his certified organic farm just across the border into Minnesota, and I was just absolutely amazed and astounded that you could, there was this method of farming that did not use any of the pesticides and was was thrilled by that and ran back from the class to find Dan, who I'd been dating for about three months by that time, and 
and I was I was going to tell him about organic agriculture, and I was so excited to share this with him. And and he looked at me and very quietly said, "Well, we farm organically," <laughs> and my mouth just dropped, and I I was totally shocked. I said, "You do what?" Yeah, <laughs> but but. To put it in context, this was the early 80s, and there were very few organic farms in North Dakota at that time. In fact, um, Dan and David's farm was one of the first farms certified here in North Dakota. And so you really kept your head down because you were you were going against the grain. You know, you were farming differently in a farming community that, you know, differences are noticed. And so it was something that he didn't share with me because he wasn't sure how I would react to that coming from a farm background myself. So anyway, I often tell people I married the guy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love that. I married a farmer. You married a farmer. An organic farmer. And an organic (laughs) farmer. And I, I love that story because as I recall, when Dan told you that he was an organic farmer, that was sort of the, the bells went off for you, and you thought, "Oh, this is really great." Yep, absolutely. Well, I want to look back. <laughs> I want to just comment on something that you said about being different, because I think it's something that your brother-in-law David actually said so eloquently when we were on the farm, and he said, "Even though society louds individualism, you know, we're proud Americans, we're individuals." We so much as humans want to be part of the group. And so we really have this situation set up where a farmer who wants to reject the chemicals that the majority of farmers have been sold stands to lose the support of their neighbors. And so it creates animosity or distrust maybe even between farm families. And in rural communities, those networks and those friendships and relationships are so critical. Yes, they are. And, and you know, it, it pits two forms of agriculture that really in many ways are incompatible and, and increasingly so with the adoption of, of biotechnology and specifically herbicide-tolerant crops. Because every time our neighbors spray their fields, we're on pins and needles watching our crops. And our neighbors are very cognizant of the fact that we farm organically and they make every attempt to make sure to spray when the wind is blowing, you know, away from our farm. And so they're very respectful in in that regard. But unfortunately, you know, we don't control Mother Nature and wind shifts happen and drift happens. And we've been able to survive the Roundup Ready crops, herbicide-tolerant cropping system, but on the horizon is 2,4-D dicamba-ready crops, and they're petitioning for approval of those crops through USDA, and they've actually been approved in Canada, as I understand mm-hmm. at this point. But the United States, there's a, a coalition called Save Our Crops, which has petitioned the USDA and the EPA specifically to do an environmental impact study, and so that looks to have set the clock back in terms of how quickly those crops might be released in 2015 is is probably anybody's best guess at this point but you know 2015 that's uncomfortably close 
For us, we raise a variety of vegetable crops for seed, and I guarantee you none of them are 2,4-D or dicamba ready. Mm-hmm. They are not ready for this, and we are not ready for this. And whereas we've been able to cope with Roundup, you know, with with not not easily, let me tell you, but um, dicamba and 2,4-D ready crops would put us out of business. I just cannot imagine. We are surrounded by GMO corn and GMO soybeans, and there there is rarely any other crop planted, you know, within our our neighborhood here, and we we would not survive that. And who would be responsible for your crop loss? I know drift is an issue, and I wonder when the farmer is affected, is there a legal course of action that you can take if you lose a crop and therefore your income for the year? Well, every farmer carries liability insurance, so you would have to notify your neighboring farmer that that drift has occurred. Um, You would notify the Department of Agriculture there would be Somebody from the Department of Ag would come out and take a look at the situation. But it really, in in some cases, if there's an inversion, there may be a, a trail of crop destruction right to you know the your field, and and you can trace it back. But with all of the crops surrounding you being dicamba or two four D ready. They'll all survive the the drift, so you know it it it'll be much more difficult to establish what that trail may be. And you know this is this is my layperson's take. I've never had to you know go out and actually try to trail a, a pesticide uh, drift incident. But my take on it is that it would be very difficult to you know two forty and that drift could travel for miles, and you're surrounded by multiple neighbors and multiple fields, how would you pinpoint exactly where it came from? Right. So, you know, it, it, and, and grass is, and unfortunately, is, is largely tolerant. So you would have to look for the four crops, you know, the, the actually leafed crops um, to figure out, you know, if you could trace back where the, where the drift incidents actually originated from. Right. So it it would be very difficult and, and even if you could, you know, pinpoint who which neighbor was responsible for the incident, now you have to ask them to notify their insurance agent. They could choose to cooperate or choose not to cooperate. And if they choose not to cooperate, then you would have to actually go to court. Mm-hmm. Um, and have your day in court, um, which is costly. And, Absolutely. You know, so none of those options are very good options, and it's another way where it destroys the neighborliness of a farming community. Mm-hmm. So being different is minor compared to having to deal with these differences between these systems of agriculture and and the impacts that one system can have on the other. So, Listeners, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Teresa Podal. She and her husband, Dan, and their extended family operate Prairie Road Organic Farm in Fullerton, North Dakota. And we are talking about 
the challenges that she faces on her farm, her beautiful farm, her crops, her seed, why she chooses organic seed and organic farming. And I just want to make one comment about our last discussion, and that is that we consumers, dietitians, many of the students at land-grant colleges are told that, USDA tells us, that we can have coexistence. But your experience actually proves that coexistence really can't take place and that, in my opinion, coexistence is really all about contamination. And I think we would be wise to start changing our language to reflect what's truly going on on farmers' fields. And what goes on on your field affects what we as consumers eat. And as a dietitian, I can make all the recommendations to eat more fruits and vegetables and choose organic fruits and vegetables until I'm blue in the face. But if those foods are not produced and not produced fairly and economically fairly for the farmer, my recommendations might as well, you know, that they don't, they don't matter because the food isn't there. So that's why I really like to have conversations with farmers on this program. I, I like to help our listeners see how we're all in this together. And that farm policy, while it may be so difficult to comprehend and while we're not trained in it, it's very important for all of us to remain vigilant and in touch with the farmers who put foods on our plate. So thank you. Now, Teresa, I want to ask you a little bit about how you got into organic seed production and why. Well, um, when my husband and I first came back to the farm in 1984, uh, their farm was a second-generation turkey farm. Their father was uh, a turkey production specialist at North Dakota State University, um, had been um, involved in the turkey industry all of his adult life. Um, When he bought the farm in the 50s, he set up a turkey breeding flock where he had hen turkeys that, and, and they produced hatching eggs. And so Dan grew up cleaning turkey hatching eggs every night after school and helping his dad pack the eggs. And, and when Dan and I first got married, our, our goal was to actually figure out a organic production system for turkeys. And, um, we actually applied for a grant through USDA. It was the Low Input Sustainable Ag, um, LISA was the acronym, grant program, which was the precursor to the Sustainable Ag Research and Education Program, now known as SARE. And um, we applied for a grant to uh, to develop this organic turkey production system. And there was a veterinarian on the review board who said, nope, can't be done. There's no way you can raise turkeys organically. You absolutely need a coxystat, which is coccidiosis, is a soil-borne pathogen that turkeys can pick up while they're out grazing. And he said, you absolutely need a coxystat. It can't be done. And so we didn't get the grant, but we went ahead and over the next 10 years were able to successfully develop an organic production system. We were producing certified organic meat, although this was prior to the USDA actually having a label for what certified organic meat meant. So we couldn't label our meat as being certified organic we had to say that they were fed grains grown without pesticides and and, and basically use the, the negative advertising because we couldn't use the word organic anywhere on the label. 
And so after 10 years of developing a production system and, and a marketing program going through USDA Specialty Claims Division with our turkey label, arranging you know all the trucking, um, having all of those systems in place, we ended up losing our processor. Our turkey processing plant went out of business. And so we had to go to one of the larger plants and have our flock processed. And it was just clear that they were not going to give us the quality processing that we needed to maintain a specialty gourmet turkey label. And so with the loss of that infrastructure for our operation, we were we were out of business. We were done. So, you know, all those linkages in a in, a, in an agricultural production system are so critical, and we've been losing that type of infrastructure for decades. And I'm happy to see that it's now being rebuilt. But so this was in the mid '90s, and my husband and I found ourselves without basically without a, a business or an operation, and so we had to reinvent ourselves as farmers. And we were students of holistic farm resource management at that point and basically took a took stock of everything else that we were doing on the farm, what other skills we had. And one of the main goals of our farm has always been to feed ourselves first and to feed ourselves well. And so the farm had three family gardens at that time and and had a very strong system of seed saving and actually breeding varieties for our own table, for our own use, both agronomic performance and also taste and quality. We wanted it to be aesthetically pleasing to us and a joy to put on the table. And so we decided to that that was a resource and a skill that we could build a business around, and we began contracting with certified organic garden seed companies. Many of them were very much in the startup phase at at that point in time, and um, so we started contract growing for garden seed catalog companies. And two years ago, developed our own label and used our experience from having marketed turkeys to developing a label for our own seed and to launch our own seed company. So North Dakota now again has a seed, an actual garden seed catalog company, and it's organic. Well, that's great. And if our listeners want to go and purchase some of your wonderful seed and learn more about your farm, they can go to www.prairieroadorganic.com. Dot co, and they can find out information about your particular organic seed. And I love that you have a safe seed pledge on your website, which I think is absolutely critical for people understanding really what's at stake here. Now, I have to ask, because we don't have that much time left, what makes organic seed different? Well, organic seed is actually produced within an organic production system, and that's important because the varieties that we're raising have to be able to cope with whatever pathogens or pests may be present in the environment. They have to not only cope with that simply because there there just isn't any silver bullets for us to – there's no – 
can or chemical or spray that we can apply to our varieties that will help them deal with it. So they there's no room for any what we call prima donnas. They all have to carry their own weight and be able to bounce back from any pressures that may be exerted on them. So we're looking for varieties that are hardy, can deal with with the weather and the climactic conditions. Um, We're looking for earliness because we're quite far north and so we have a shorter growing season. So we need early season vigor so that the seeds can pop out of the ground and get ahead of any weed competition grow vigorously so that whenever pests may come in on the wind that, you know, they're not itty-bitty plants at that point in time, that they're big enough that they can tolerate whatever might come at them. And in addition to that, still have high quality and and taste for the, the consumer. So all of those things have to be wrapped up in that tiny little package we call seed and So we're continually selecting our seed within an organic environment to perform within that environment. And it's so critical that we do this work on an ongoing basis, year after year, so that the seed experiences whatever the season throws at it, whether it's monsoons in the spring like we received this year, where it's cold, temperatures, the soil isn't warming up and the seed has to be cold tolerant and not rot in the ground, but actually able to still germinate. So these are the types of things that we need our seed to experience. And this is what you're purchasing when this is the care and the selection work that you're purchasing when you purchase certified organic seed. So we only have a minute left. And I want you to be able to send us off with a message. I know there's one piece that I was hoping I'd have a chance to ask you, and that was something you told me when you were on the farm about why you farm organically. So I'd like you to answer that. But also, if you can, in a nutshell, summarize where your passion and advocacy for seed and food sovereignty come from. Well, I was reading a book by Gary Nabum, Where Our Food Comes From, and he talks about the centers of of plant diversity where many of our food crops came from. And so understanding that is is really fascinating. And there's a quote in there, and it says, it's the social, economic, and political access to seed diversity at critical moments that can make or break a community's means of achieving food security. And there's this movement towards local and regional food systems and I'm just so pleased to see that, but um, in, in along with food security, we also we we have to be very cognizant of the fact that we need seed security to go along with that. You can't have food security without seed security, and um, right now our seed system is corporatized and it's owned within the corporate model, which is profit driven. And anytime you're profit driven, um, you're, it basically, um, erodes the biodiversity that is, is out there and supports our, our food system because their, their goal is a one size fits all seed system where a seed variety can cover as many acres as possible. And what we need is regional seed systems that can address the regional conditions and needs of our gardeners and farmers. 
Well, Teresa, we're going to have to leave it at that. We're out of time, unfortunately. But oh, I want to thank you so much for being my guest. We've been speaking with Teresa Padol. She and her husband have a marvelous farm in Fullerton, North Dakota. It's organic. It's called Prairie Road Organic Farm. We'll provide a link to that on our website. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank Teresa Padol for being my guest. And I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hamilton in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Teresa, thank you so much for being my guest and for farming organically. Thank you so much, Melinda. It's been a pleasure being with you.